Well, welcome everyone. This is uh, the third of our uh, Sunday morning seminars related to the Philemon Project. And um, if you're just joining us for the first time, we want to say welcome. And uh, we're in the midst of a 10-week teaching and preaching series that is uh, being driven by, it's uh, one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. It's the book of Philemon. At least that's the way we've chosen to mispronounce the name uh, over these 10 weeks. And um, it's a short book written by the Apostle Paul in which uh, he addresses a relationship between a man named Onesimus and another man named Philemon. And in this case, Onesimus was a slave uh, in the household of Philemon. And uh, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter that's about uh, reconciliation and changing that relationship between those two men and uh, changing that relationship in front of the watching church that met in Philemon's house and uh, with implications for us today. And so we're spending uh, several weeks talking about how the New Testament speaks to issues of slavery and uh, the kinds of justice that uh, come into play when we deal with that sort of issue, whether it's in the first century world or the 21st century world. And so we're in the third uh, of those 10 weeks. And today we're talking a bit about what it's like to interpret the letter of Philemon as a first century text. And I can think of a few uh, better people to guide us through that conversation than my friend Luke Bobo, uh, who is uh, a great student of the scriptures and uh, I think, Luke, you've written a book about this, right? If we wanted to buy it, what title should we be looking for? Is this where I do a shameless plug? Yeah, it absolutely is. I'm setting you up. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> it's called A Lay Person's Guide to Biblical Interpretation. A Lay Person's Guide to Biblical Interpretation. And your beloved pastor was so kind and gracious to write the uh, foreword to this book. Well, one of the things that uh, that Luke pays attention to is is how do we uh, how do we first understand what a text meant before we try to say what it means for today, and uh, so we'll be talking about that as our hour goes on this morning. So um, let me quickly ask Luke, would you pray for our time together this morning? Uh, quickly pray, or I'm quickly asking. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> you can pray as long as you want. Uh, well, that's, that's dangerous. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we, my goodness, we simply appreciate and love and adore and honor you. You are the good shepherd of the sheep. God, I'm reminded as I have started reading uh, Hosea, Lord, even when we play the ugly bride, you pursue us. You don't give up on us. You uh, woo us, you romance us, you court us, you provide for us. Amazing love, amazing mercy, amazing grace. Lord, I don't understand why you don't give up on people like us. So Lord, may we not give up on each other. Um, and may we not give up on your church, your bride. Amen. Lord, forgive us, I pray, for our sins. We pray all this in Jesus' name to Christ. Amen. All right, Luke, I think you had some questions to guide our conversation, so ask away. 
I sure do. So let's start, let's start with a softball type question. And okay. uh, Jimmy, let me remind you that your wife is listening. Okay. So how did you meet Trisha? And tell me, was it love at first sight and who played hard to get? Okay. Um, that, that is an easy question to answer. Trisha and I met um, on a, uh, I believe it was a Tuesday evening when I was a junior at Clemson University. And uh, we were getting ready to host a meeting of our uh, campus ministry, Reformed University Fellowship. I was on the leadership team. And so I was one of the people who would get there an hour early to help set up. And in walks this um, uh, nice looking young woman uh, that I had never seen before. And it was a, would be a little bit unusual for someone I had never seen to show up an hour early for this kind of campus ministry meeting. You know, if you're on leadership team, you tend to recognize faces. Well, I didn't recognize Trisha's face. And uh, our campus minister had been uh, encouraging us to be very welcoming and friendly. He thought we were getting a little cold to uh, newcomers. Oh, so, so duty. what a great opportunity. Uh, yes, I was, I was doing my duty as a leader to go introduce myself to, uh, to this young woman. And uh, actually there was a piano concert on campus that night, I thought she was in the wrong room. Uh, so I, I went up and introduced myself and I said, if you're looking for the piano concert, it's on the other side of campus. And she said, no, actually I'm supposed to be here. So instead of spending the next hour setting up for the meeting, like I was supposed to, I spent the next hour talking to Trisha. Uh -huh. and, um, so she had already graduated from school at that point and I was only a junior. So that took all the pressure off for me because she was so far out of my league. I didn't have to even worry whether she was going to be interested. So that gave me freedom to be myself. And she liked me anyway. So um, I'm not sure if either of us played hard to get. It pretty much was love at first sight. So we met in January. We started talking about getting married in March. We were engaged in July and married in December of the same year. Um, so uh, if our children, you know, meet and get married uh, in a short space of time, we don't have a leg to stand on in terms of objections. <laughs> so your story reminds me of the church lady from Saturday Night Live. Uh, she would often say, how convenient that you were told to be more friendly to, to guests, huh? Well, maybe I'm just, maybe that's selective memory on my part. <laughs> well, Trisha's not... Um, log or unmuting to correct you. So we'll take that at face value. Okay. <laughs> so last week, um, we might say it this way, we have some unfinished business. Uh, one of the questions last week was, by golly, what's the definition of critical race theory? Um, I'm sure a few of us have probably heard that being talked about, social media, uh, among each other. So how about we uh, define as best we can, Jimmy, what critical race theory is? Okay, great. I think we have like a few slides. You have, you have a definition for us that you like to use. So we're gonna show that on the slides now. If, if you wanna read through this, I'll advance uh, as we work our way through the slides. Okay, I need to, it's, it's small. Okay. Can we share it? Can someone share the screen?
Can can Billy share that with the entire group because it's pretty small. It's like an eye chart. There we go. How about that? Uh, don't see it yet. I don't see it. Hmm. Well, I tell you what, I can read it because I I'm seeing it pretty big okay. on my screen. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, Luke, this is a definition that that uh, you chose for us uh, from Greg Thompson. Yes. And uh, we'll read our way through it. And then you might have a comment on uh, what stands out to you about this definition. I'll read it for us and advance through uh, the screens. Critical race theory is a multidisciplinary and provisionally held constellation of scholarly attempts to discern, understand, theorize, and critically expose the existence and meaning of observable patterns of racial injustice in a given society. It proposes that these injustices are not simply located in the prejudices of the human heart, but are actually embedded, often invisibly, in the patterns, systems, structures, etc., of society. It began as a legal theory motivated by questions about observable inequities in the criminal justice system and in time grew to a set of more comprehensive claims about our society. And then last slide, part of this definition. It is not a worldview, but simply a mode of exploration, a methodology for understanding and addressing socially embedded sin. Someone, someone said in English, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. So I I just uh, make these few comments. Um, at the very end, you read is not a worldview. It's it's not meant to much like Christianity is a worldview. We can live by a worldview. We can govern our lives by the worldview that we find in Scripture. This definition claims that critical race theory is not a worldview. It's not, it's not, someone is not proposing that we actually govern or live by this critical race theory. The second comment is, um, Greg says it's provisional. Now think about the Old Testament. The animal sacrifices were meant to be provisional for the final sacrifice, meaning Jesus Christ. So it was never meant to be permanent the critical race theory. The third point I'll make is this. Um, one thing I think most Christians suffer from in this country is learning how to be discerning. Greg says in this definition that we can use this model to discern systemic racism in this country. And the last statement I would make is this. And this is something uh, one of your famous PCA persons said. Francis Schaeffer, he said, all truth is God's truth, which means we can find, which means we can find truthful things and even, and even critical race theory. We can find truthful things in science and literature. And so our job is to find what's truthful about the critical race theory and jettison the rest. Great. Um, so, Luke, at this point, I'd like to recommend some resources, and I think you had a book recommendation to make as well. So, uh, if we could display those slides again, that'd be great. Okay. 
Luke, tell us about this book. So um, I led a book discussion with uh, three whites and three blacks. I was one of the uh, black folks. And we did a book discussion on Esau Macaulay's book, Reading While Black, Reading While Black. And so I posted on Facebook and asked the Facebook orbit, what book should we do next in terms of a book discussion? And many recommended this book. <laughs> well, in fact, Greg Thompson, one of the co-authors, recommended this book, Reparations. <laughs> uh, but I had heard about the book prior to this, so um, I took it in jest. But uh, when we think about reparations, um, that, that word gives us pause. We get uncomfortable. But I want you to think of uh, this term in these ways. We can think creatively, instead of giving a lump sum of money, what about we help people post bail? Because once someone gets sucked into the criminal justice system, it's hard to get out. And many times African-Americans are sucked into the criminal justice system with high bails. The amount is set so high that they cannot pay it. In fact, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative says this, one out of every three African-American males, 18 to 35, will either be in prison, in jail, or on parole. So we can actually prevent or lower that number. That's 33% of a population, African-Americans make up 13% of, of the American population. Wow. And another way we can think about this, this term is, how about we help people with mortgage relief? Th this term simply means to help people recover what has been stolen. And that, that's a biblical concept when you think about restitution and what Jesus and, and the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. So I'll just leave it there. Great. Uh, Luke, could you tell us quickly, because I think folks may be asking this in the chat, uh, tell us a bit about Duke and Greg, who they are. So Greg is, <laughs> oh, Greg, this, this dude is uh, pretty smart. He did his PhD work on Dr. King. Martin Luther King at Virginia, um, University of Virginia, I believe. Greg um, was at Covenant Seminary. He graduated from Covenant Seminary. Greg also um, was so smart that when Michael Williams, and Jimmy remembers Michael Williams, when Michael Williams uh, could not make it to class, Greg, a recent graduate of Covenant, taught our class. And he taught our class on angels. I would never forget his lecture. Uh, Greg is married. I think he has three daughters and one son. He's married to Courtney. Uh, they lived in Memphis, Tennessee for a while and recently moved back to Charlottesville, Virginia. So I, I just encourage you to Google his name. He's, um, he's a well sought out speaker, a good communicator, good writer. And I'm certainly buying this book. <laughs> and uh, Duke Kwan is the top photo on your screen there. Duke is a pastor of a church in our denomination. 
uh, in the Washington DC area. And uh, so um, something to look forward to reading when that book comes out. Uh, let me recommend a few other resources as well. So I'm gonna put up a slide here. And for those of you who would like to take these down, um, I'll get you oriented. These are three resources that I've found helpful when thinking about critical race theory. These are not lengthy or um, they're not written for a scholarly audience. They're really to help folks like uh, you and me understand uh, some basics. Uh, the first is an article from CNN, what critical race theory is and isn't, a helpful orientation, a very basic level. And uh, then is an article by Anthony Bradley. Uh, some of you may know Anthony from uh, a couple of years that he spent worshiping here at InTown. Uh, it's, it's part of, uh, you'll find this on the website mereorthodoxy.com. Critical race theory isn't a threat for Presbyterians. That's the, the name of the article by Anthony. And in that article, Anthony takes uh, largely the posture that Luke mentioned earlier. Uh, all truth is God's truth, so let's learn to read and study with discernment. And uh, he's saying that as we engage critical race theory, we can trust the scriptures to guide us to see what's true and what isn't about that approach. Um, so helpful article there. And then finally, this uh, you'd find on the gospelcoalition.org website, the incompatibility of critical theory and Christianity. One of the things you'll notice there is the word race is missing from the title because this article isn't about critical race theory. It's an article about critical theory more broadly. So critical race theory is one uh, discipline. Critical theory is a larger, broader kind of umbrella discipline. And uh, even though that title suggests, you know, a kind of negative posture, incompatibility, um, I find that the article is written from a very fair perspective and, uh, and it takes a, a very uh, wise approach uh, in terms of let, let's study and read and find out something about critical theory before we decide to totally dismiss it. And uh, so uh, again, that kind of all truth is God's truth posture and learning to read with discernment. Um, so I found these to be helpful articles. And I'm gonna leave this slide up for just a moment uh, if, in case you wanna take down some details. But I wanted to uh, just make a quick comment on something I read in that CNN article. It says that uh, critical race theorists believe that racism is an everyday experience for most people of color. Let me read that sentence again. Critical race theory, critical race theorists believe that racism is an everyday experience for most people of color. So one of the things I'm finding myself having to do when I read a statement like that as a Christian is to um, check my question. So instead of my first question being, what do I think of critical race theory? What if my first question was, is this claim true? Is it true that racism is an everyday experience for most people of color? And, and it's possible that I could get so distracted by asking, what do I think about critical race theory that I stop asking what's true? And if it is true, that racism is an everyday experience for most people of color in the United States, 
I need to know that. If that is true, then I need to ask, what does God think about that reality? And what does he want me to think about that reality? Well, for a moment, let's do a thought experiment. Let's, uh, let's say that maybe the CNN article overstates it. And let's replace a couple of words. And let's say that, uh, let's say that critical race theorists uh, are exaggerating a bit. Just a thought experiment for the sake of argument. What if racism is just a, a frequent experience for some people of color? Well, even if that is true, I need to know that. You see, if my first thought is, what do I think about critical race theory? I can get distracted from the question of what's actually happening in the world around me? And what does God want me to think about what's happening in the world around me? So um, I think that's the kind of question that God wants us to ask. What's true in the world that he's actually made us to live in? And if there's something broken about that world, we need to know it. And we need to turn to his word to find out what he's calling us to do to engage it. And I'll have to tell you that in my conversations with minority friends, I don't think this is an overstatement. Um, the minority friends that I have talked with over the past year have said, yeah, racism is an everyday part of my experience. And uh, so I've, I've got to learn to ask that kind of question and to, uh, to not shut down the conversation by getting so busy asking, what do I think about this theory? To remember to ask, but, but what's actually happening in the world? And uh, what are the facts uh, on the ground, so to speak? So uh, one thing I would challenge you to do, if, uh, if you're learning about critical race theory, or maybe you don't want to learn more about it, engage somebody in a conversation mm -hmm. about it to ask what's, uh, what's true in your life? What are, what are you experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis? And how can I learn from you? Um, so, Luke, thanks for uh, helping us to go back and, and wrap up that unfinished bit of business. Someone had asked that question last week, and uh, so we took some time preparing, and uh, thanks for leading us through that. You want to... Thank yeah, thank you, Jim. If I can give a, a very brief story. Sure. So um, on Thursday of this week, I had the privilege of preaching at Missouri Baptist University in St. Louis, uh, right down the street from Covenant. On Friday, that next day, I visited a, a white brother who is leading a renovation uh, project called Love the Lou. You can Google that later, Love the Lou. So he's a, a white guy, has his family there in this very blighted area in, in St. Louis, Missouri, a, a place where Chuck Berry grew up. You guys, some of you know that name, but Google loved the Luke. So Luke, his name is Lucas. Lucas said to me, on one occasion, a African-American male was having an argument with his baby mama his exact words, and the African-American male was waving a gun. So Lucas, as any good citizen would do, called the local police, and the 911 operator said this, call us back when gunshots are fired. Mm. Mm. Now, <laughs> 
I'll just leave it at that. Wow. If, if that were your neighborhood, do you think the 911 operator would say that? When he told me that, I just paused and almost fell to the ground when he said it. I'm not trying to be dramatic. It just hit me. So how do we make a segue to the next question? We'll do the best we can here. Okay, Jimmy, uh, for, for beginners and those who are more experienced with interpreting uh, New Testament texts, how do you go about interpreting a text like Philemon? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, so I think one of the first things we have to do is, is remember uh, what century we're in and uh, remembering that uh, Philemon is written in the first century. We live in the 21st century and that creates, um, that creates a couple of uh, risks one risk is that we could just dismiss a text like Philemon and say, well, it comes from the first century. That's so long ago. How could that be relevant to us today? Or I might look at it and say, hey, I understand this book uh, talks about slavery. I'm going to read a verse for us real quick. Um, here's Philemon. And uh, the Apostle Paul says in verses 15 and 16, Perhaps this is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you, Philemon, for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Well, I could read that word slave, and I could say, well, I live in the 21st century in Atlanta. Um, slavery is a thing of the past, so this book is irrelevant. It's first century text. I don't really need to spend much time with it. That's one of the risks. The, the moment we recognize this as a first century text, we could say irrelevant, nothing to do with me, uh, move on to the next uh, part of the Bible until I can, well, the problem is the whole Bible was written in a different century. If I apply that logic every time, I'm, I'm pretty much going to assume that nothing in the Bible is relevant. That's one of the risks. The other risk is, of course, just the flip side. Um, the flip side is that we would say, well, let's take everything I know from my 21st century perspective and, and import it back into the Bible. What's so that called, take, Jimmy? What, what is that called? What's that uh, word? That's one of your favorite words I know. It's, um, it's called eisegesis, right? Thank and you. so uh, Thank you, Professor Jimmy. Yes, I, I think we've mentioned this in a previous week, but let's review it again because I don't get to teach Greek much anymore exegesis greek word ex meaning from or out where you're trying to to draw meaning out of the text eisegesis meaning into where you're reading meaning into the text that that the author never intended and so uh, one of the risks is to say this is first century document it's irrelevant another risk is to say uh, well let's just take everything we know from the 21st century and make this text say what we want it to say in our categories and um, I'd like to use an analogy that I think could help us with that. Um, I'll compare it to a spider's web. Uh, so think of a spider's web where you don't have just one thread or one strand of web. You've got, you've got all these um, threads woven together. 
you've got all these threads coming together in a pattern and uh, revolving around a center, but they're all linked together. And so anytime God speaks a word, uh, this is true every time you speak a word as well. This just has to do with how communication works. It works this way in God's world, no matter who's the, the communicator, whether it's God or us. But you don't just speak a word that lands on one thread. You speak a word that lands in the web. And all the threads coming together determine the meaning of that word. So if my word is fire, well, am I speaking it into a web of meaning that includes uh, being in a theater, the lights are out, and we're starting to smell smoke, and we're starting to see blight bright flashing lights. If so, then my word fire means the building is burning. We need to evacuate. Everybody move right now. But if I come in shivering on a chilly day and I'm going like this and I walk into a house and there's a, a part of the web of meaning that I'm speaking my word into includes a warm fireplace in the corner of the house. And I walk in doing this and I say, F -f 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 fire. Well, now I have, I have created a meaning by speaking that word into that web of context. And that word fire now has nothing to do with evacuating a building. It actually means I want to come inside and warm up because I'm freezing. And so that's how we interpret text. We ask questions about the web of meaning. And so we just recognize that the web in the first century is different than it is in the 21st century. And so we grab hold of a thread and we follow that thread and we see how it connects into the web and we find out the meaning of that text. And we don't assume that all the threads in the 21st century are identical to first century threads. We have to do that hard work. That doesn't mean that we can make any text mean whatever we want it to. By speaking that word into that web, God defined its meaning. He anchored it into that web. It's the same way for you and me every time we communicate. So when we learn to do exegesis, we're, we're simply trying to find out more about the web of meaning uh, that uh, God's words were spoken into so that we can better understand them. All right, I'm, I'm done with my spider web analogy. And if you have a phobia of spiders, then that didn't help you at all. And I'll, uh, I'll do my best to come up with a different metaphor next time. Well, what Jimmy taught us in Greek, I'll just put this in the chat. I can't tell you how many times we heard this in Greek. Context is king. <laughs> the words have a, a semantic range. You can tell Jimmy taught me well. I use those words in my book in his honor. And he taught us the word nomic. Jimmy, what does that word mean? Nomic. Well, so um, you probably case, should spell it first. Yes, G N O M I C, nomic. Um, and we're not talking about little forest creatures from Scandinavian <laughs> mythology, not that kind of gnome. Um, so uh, this, this again comes from a Greek word that means proverb or um, sort of rule or principle. So uh, a nomic statement is a, is a, 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 a proverb a guiding principle. And uh, so uh, when, we, when we come to scripture, we are 
looking for those kinds of statements. We're looking for, uh, we're going to handle those statements a little bit differently than we would a different kind of statement. So a, a scientific statement about an, an experiment you just ran is, um, is, is a factual statement, whereas a, a gnomic statement of a proverb is going to be interpreted in a very different way. So if I were to say, um, you know, the early bird gets the worm, I didn't just run an experiment and, uh, and do tests. Uh, that, that's a proverbial statement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interpret that a little bit differently because it's, that's a different part of the web. Um, whereas if, if I'm making a statement in, in this sort of scientific experimental web, then if I say, you know, the robin who arrived earlier in the day got more food than the other robins, well, that's, that's not nearly as rhetorically powerful as saying the early bird gets the worm. And so one of the things we're doing as we read first century literature is we're asking what kind of literature is this? And when we come to the book of Philemon, it's not a government document. It's not establishing first century Roman policy. So if we're expecting Philemon to make a policy statement about how slavery ought to be phased out of existence in the Roman Empire, we're asking the wrong kind of question because this is not that to a Christian leader in a Christian church. It's going to have strong implications for slavery in the Christian community. But if we come to it expecting it to read like an official document that sets government policy, we're already setting it up to fail, right? In the same way that if I asked early bird gets the worm to, uh, to give me a scientific theory of why some birds eat more than others, well, it's, I'm setting that, that gnomic statement up to fail because I'm applying the wrong kind of interpretive guide to the wrong kind of literature. Well said. This is like deja vu for me to, um, it's like I'm sitting back in his Greek class and all the accompanying trauma that comes with, uh, I'm, I'm being funny, of course. I love, I love taking Greek uh, from your pastor. Okay, here's the next question, um, Jimmy. Some Christians use the silence of scripture mm. to conclude slavery was okay in God's eyes. This whole notion that we don't find a command, a explicit command, slavery is bad. Some Christians use the silence of scripture to fill in what they think is missing, eisegesis. Yep. How should we use the silence of scripture in the context of biblical interpretation? Yes, uh, well, Luke, you know you're asking me a hard question, right? Um, well, because so, you, you're able to handle this. I know you can. Take a breather. Uh, ex exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Sure. Good. <laughs> so how do, we, uh, how do we do a good job with arguments uh, from silence? And so, as, as everybody knows, arguments from silence are uh, tricky to deal with. And so, Luke has given us an example here of some sometimes the uh, what we perceive as as the new testaments or even the bible as a whole silence regarding an issue can disappoint us like we wish the bible had more to say or we wish it would speak more strongly so what i want to 
do to get us started here is to, to say, uh, uh, let's make sure that what we perceive as silence actually is silence. In other words, Scripture may be saying more than we are able to hear because Scripture was written in the first century and listening with 21st century ears, we may not be hearing everything that was there. Now, we have to be careful because we could use that as an excuse for just reading back all of our 21st century perspectives into the first century. Uh, so how do we make sure to hear what's there without making the text say what we want it to say from our perspective? And let's give a couple of examples. I'm going to start with a quote from Esau Macaulay. Uh, this is a book that uh, Luke mentioned earlier. It's called Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And uh, all of us on our Philemon Project teaching team recommend this book. This is what uh, Esau Macaulay says. He's a New Testament professor at uh, Wheaton College and uh, a uh, uh, pastor in the uh, Anglican Church. I suppose the right word would be priest. Esau himself is black and and so he's writing a book to help black readers of scripture understand uh, how their tradition informs uh, scripture in a hopeful way and uh, he doesn't mind if those of us who aren't black read over his shoulder so to speak um, so <laughs> well this, said well said Jimmy <laughs> yeah but I mean I, I think I'm getting that right correct Luke I mean yeah I think you're right I think he's giving others a inside peek Yes. On the black interpretive tradition. That's good. good. So this is a key quote in a chapter about slavery. On the first read, the Bible doesn't appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. And yet this is the crucial part. The Bible says more than enough. And so uh, here's Esau Macaulay saying, sometimes when we think the Bible is silent on an issue, it's actually speaking very loudly but we haven't tuned our ears right to hear it. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. Then I'm going to come back to an example of what I think is a good way to use the silence of Scripture. So uh, here we, we want to say, uh, if, if the Bible seems to be silent on an issue, maybe it speaks more loudly hmm. than, uh, than we are properly appreciating. Some I'm going to read an example again from uh, the book of Philemon. This is. Uh, We're not ready for this slide yet. Yep. Okay. We'll come back to that one later. So this is verse 16 of Philemon. Where the apostle Paul says, I'm, I'm sending him back to you. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. Now for us, that sounds maybe kind of underwhelming uh, because that language of beloved brother may sound just like religious jargon. Well, sometimes close friends call each other brother or sometimes Christians call themselves brothers and sisters. Um, but, you know, here we are with this statement, slave, brother, and it just sounds a little underwhelming to us. But if we could put ourselves in the first century cultural context, if we grab the web into which God spoke this word and we follow this thread of kinship and we understand 
that slaves in the first century were systematically cut off from all kinship relationships. They were treated as though they had no family. They were treated as though they didn't belong to any society, any group. They were treated as though they didn't belong even to the human race. And to say, I don't want you to treat this person like that. I want you to treat this person like someone who belongs in the family, a brother, someone who's not only a brother, but a beloved brother. That's a radical statement. It is shouting that Jesus coming into the world is changing everything. Now, from a 21st century, especially living in the post-abolitionist era, right, when, when there's been a phenomenal movement uh, to, to abolish slavery from the world for the most part. We'll talk in future weeks about, about uh, modern slavery. But uh, we, we live on this side of the abolitionist movement. We would, we would read this language as, as silence. But if we sat in the first century, it, it would not sound like silence. So Luke asked the question, how do we deal with arguments from silence when we come to Scripture? And the first thing to ask is, well, did the first century readers hear silence? <laughs> or did they hear more than we're fully registering? And that's one of the reasons we read from a first century perspective. We have to, it takes hard work, but it's worth it. Jimmy, could I, could oh, I add ahead. something? Yeah. Just in, quickly interject. So it sounds like we're, what you're saying is we may, we may think it's silent, but after we, do, after we roll up our sleeves and do the, the heavy lifting of actually interpreting a text, going behind the text, sure. we find that it's not very silent. Yes. And so that immediately raises a question Luke, and and it's sort of, well, does that mean we can make any text mean anything we want it to? Let me give an example. Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if I were to make the statement that one of the ways you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to love the scriptures, study his word, someone could make the case that, well, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus was silent about the scriptures. He simply said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's eisegesis. You're making the words of Jesus say something he didn't mean. Well, no, I now ask the question, when Jesus said that about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, mind, and strength, into what web of context did he speak those words? And it was into this larger web of things he had said about man does not live by uh, bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If you look at Jesus' overall life and teaching, it's very clear that even though he didn't explicitly say in that one moment, if you want to love the Lord, you should read his word. It is clear that that one of the applications of that comment about loving the Lord with your whole heart is loving his word. Now, if I were on the flip side, if I were going to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, means that you should become a Scientologist. <laughs> because the God Jesus was talking about was the God 
that uh, L. Ron Hubbard uh, proposes in Scientology. Well, you're not going to find any threads that connect what Jesus said with that statement. You would find many threads to connect what Jesus says about loving God to the scriptures. And so you see how that web concept helps us to tell the difference between unfolding the meaning of a statement in its context versus reading meaning back into a first century statement that it never intended. And um, so we have to do that when we come to any part of scripture and in fact, let me state again, we have to do that when it comes to every act of communication. Human communication works this way, and God's communication to us works this way. Why? Well, because it's God's world. And um, so all communication has certain principles about it, because God is the one who designed the world. He is the one who designed communication. He is the one who spoke the universe into being by his command. And uh, Jesus is the one who is the living word. So communication is something God invented. And so we shouldn't be too surprised to find that, hey, just as, just as you can speak a word and people don't have the right to make it mean whatever they want mm-hmm. uh, using arguments from silence, well, God's word works the same way. Um, can I use one more example that would come from, uh, this, is, uh, this is to take us back to um, to the scriptures for a moment to the book of Ephesians. And, and if you stick around long enough in the morning to, uh, to hear this morning's sermon, you're going to hear this again, but it's a, an example of a proper use of, of an argument from silence. So if you look at, at the book of Ephesians chapters five and six, the apostle Paul is discussing how the gospel uh, should be applied to relationships in a typical first century Uh, Roman household. And so he talks about relationships between husbands and wives. And he quotes from the Old Testament uh, to underscore what he's saying there. He says, yeah, Genesis says the two will become one flesh. And then he moves on to talk about another relationship typical in a first century household, parents and children. And he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the Ten Commandments. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise. And then he talks about another relationship, the relationship between slaves and masters in a first century household. But now there's silence. He doesn't quote from the scriptures at all. When he's talking about marriage, he quotes from scripture. When he's talking about parenting, he quotes from scripture. When he's talking about slavery, he doesn't quote from scripture. Is it because the Old Testament had nothing to say about slavery? No, it's not because of that. Well, in my mind, that's a very significant silence. There's a pattern going on here. And then that pattern is interrupted by silence. And we want to ask the question, why? Why might the Apostle Paul have treated this relationship differently than the other two relationships? That's a good kind of question to ask about a biblical silence. And uh, can that be a teaser? And we will get to the answer in our sermon later this morning. Um, Here's a hint. Those three relationships are fundamentally different. And uh, one of them, one of them doesn't make an appearance in Genesis one and two. It only makes an appearance in the Bible after Genesis three and humanity's rebellion against God. But I'm probably giving away too much. So I'll stop there.
Wow, that's a that's a great response and a great teaser. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm about to fall out of my seat, Jimmy. <laughs> that's not fair. Okay, so in the time that we have left, um, most of you, if you heard Thurman Williams, um, one of the group members on the Philemon Project, uh, he preached last week and he referred to a passage, Deuteronomy chapter 23. You might want to turn there in your Bibles. Let me encourage you to find your Bibles and turn there to Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 through 16. So he referred to this passage last week. Here, Israel was called to be a place of safety. So the question is, uh, Jimmy, is this on Paul's mind as he appeals to Philemon to take back Onesimus? And how might our 21st century churches apply this notion of being a place of safety? I could think of several ways to apply it, but this is the Jimmy show, so I'll let you answer. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, let me read for us uh, first the text of Deuteronomy 23, 15 to 16, and then I want to come back and and let's uh, read this quote from Esau Macaulay as well. So here's the biblical text. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Um, Now, a quote here from Esau Macaulay's book, this law was without precedent in the ancient Near East or the Greco-Roman world in Jesus' day. In theory, enslaved persons outside of Israel could see Israel as a place of safety. So this uh, wraps a lot of threads together from our conversation Uh, First of all, we we may think the Bible is silent about um, showing mercy toward people who are enslaved, but sometimes it just means we haven't read the whole Bible. And so maybe you're not familiar enough with Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy chapter chapter 23. Maybe your uh, Deuteronomy Bible reading uh, muscles get you through about chapter 12, and then you're like, oh man, this is boring stuff. Well, it is boring. (laughs) (laughs) You know, work your way on through chapter 23 and you hear this this uh, commandment that might sound like common sense to most of us living in our post abolitionist context. And thank God that it sounds like common sense. Right. To most of us, if if someone comes to us fleeing mistreatment by another, we're not going to send them right back in the middle of it. That sounds like common sense. But Esau Macaulay is reminding us, hey, this was not common sense in the nations surrounding Israel. This was not common sense in the Greco-Roman world. In those nations, in that empire, if a slave escaped, you sent him right back to the master. And then the master could punish them however they pleased. And here is God saying to ancient Israel, no. You, my people, are to be a place of safety when someone needs refuge. If they come to you, do not wrong them. Now, I read earlier from the ESV translation, and um, it ends with that phrase, you shall not wrong him. Uh, if you dig, dig a little bit more deeply into the, uh, the, the Hebrew verb there, wrong, 
to wrong someone, you discover that uh, this verb can also be translated oppress or mistreat. In other words, this is not a, a, a mild or slight form of doing wrong to someone. This is a radical injustice. And so here's the text saying that returning an enslaved person who has escaped is a radical injustice. Well, now let's ask a question about the Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul know the Old Testament? You, you, you read the book of Philemon, and the Apostle Paul never quotes Deuteronomy 23 anywhere in these uh, 25 verses. As he writes this letter to Philemon and to the church that meets at his house, he doesn't ever say, hey, guys, I want you to keep Deuteronomy 23 in your mind when you read this. But let's ask a question. Did the Apostle Paul know the Old Testament? Did he know it better than you and I do? Well, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Did he believe it still applied to the lives of Christians? Yes, absolutely. Did he teach it to the churches that he ministered to and started and founded? Yes, absolutely. Do you think then that it's appropriate to read this book with Deuteronomy 23 in mind? So it's not, we can't simply read it as a case of a slave who has escaped and is being sent back for the master to do with whatever he pleases. Now, that is how many people have read the book of Philemon over the years. And my suggestion, and I'd say the four of us as a team leading through this Philemon project, we're recognizing that a lot of interpretation of this book hasn't adequately accounted for Deuteronomy 23. And to say, wait a minute, can this be read simply as sending an escaped slave back to the master to do whatever he pleases? In fact, we don't think that's what the book of Philemon is doing at all. And I love the phrase that uh, Macaulay's book uses, place of safety. What would it be uh, for churches today to be a place of safety for people? And I'm not talking about, you know, physical building, someone comes in and seeks sanctuary, but a community of relationships where people who are being mistreated could know that if I come into this community, I will not be mistreated in that way. If I come into this community, I will not be neglected or abused. I will not be treated like someone who's less than human. What a powerful testimony and witness to the, the goodness of Jesus Christ if every congregation, including ours here at InTown, could be that kind of place of safety for people who are accustomed to being treated otherwise in other places. Slavery may not be the, the issue in our day, but there are plenty of people we know who are accustomed to being mistreated in many ways. And uh, it would be a wonderful testimony to the power of the gospel here in Atlanta, if people could say, you know, there's a network of folks over here who are really radically flawed. They are imperfect people. They are broken and twisted in a lot of ways. But I think if I go to, to where they are, it will be a, a safe place for me. And I won't be mistreated in the ways that I'm accustomed to. So that's what God was calling his people to be in the Old Testament. That's what he was calling his people to be in the first century. I think that's what he's calling 
uh, Philemon and the church that met in his house to be for Onesimus. And that's what he's calling us to be today. Jimmy, could I give um, two historical examples? I, 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 put, I just put these in the chat. Those who relied on the Underground Railroad hmm. relied on places of safety. So Christians actually broke the law, broke the law so that slaves could leave the horrific um, slavery machine in the South to travel to the North. And Dr. Jones told me about this um, French village that he had 5,000 Jews from Nazis. And I, and I put in the chat, Google weapons, it's either plural or singular, weapon of the spirit. And you'll see a, a blurb about that. And let me just give a very practical example. So a friend of mine, a minister, emotionally abused his wife. He will use the Bible to say, you are to serve me. So one day I get a call from him. Let's call his name Mike. Mike said, is, is Susie at your house? Susie had left and taken half the possessions. Now, if Susie were at my house, I would tell Mike no. Because my place would be a place of safety for her. It, it would be foolish or unethical for me to send her back to a place where she was abused. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a common day example of that. Yeah. And I've given you two historical. Mm -hmm. But God is calling the church to do this. And so think about the common, think about our current crises. I don't think it's a crisis of immigration and those fle fleeing coming to our country as refugees. Can the church serve as a place of safety in that case as well? Yeah. So uh, we're drawing close to the end of our time. I'd like to add one more biblical example or two to what Luke has just shared, and then I'll close our time with prayer. Um, so I'm thinking, Luke, as you mentioned those examples of uh, the church being a place of safety, uh, even if it involves disobeying secular authorities. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament. These uh, two Hebrew women named Shifra and Puah, real heroes of our faith. And uh, it should make you proud that in your spiritual ancestry are these two women. They were the midwives who helped many Hebrew women give birth. And uh, Pharaoh, of course, had ordered that every male child born to the Israelites would be put to death. That was a command. That was a law. And these two women said, uh, no, <laughs> we're not going to do it. And so, you know, they, they told this lie. They said, you know, <laughs> these women are so, uh, so strong and capable that they're having their babies before we even get there. Why were they doing that? Because they did not want to bring about an injustice, a wrong, an act of oppression. And so they were creating a place of safety for male children in Israel mm -hmm. against the commands mm -hmm. of uh, their land. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I mean, here's a great example. 
Esau Macaulay even refers back to Daniel and to Joseph and says, hey, here are two men who were enslaved. Uh, Joseph was a slave in Egypt. Daniel was a slave in Babylon. You may think, no, Daniel was a high court official. Well, make no bones about it. He was a slave and he was commanded to serve as a court official. He had no choice in the matter. Here were two young men who, um, who were enslaved and who resisted attempts to pressure them to compromise their faith in God. And, and those acts of resistance and disobedience actually drew these secular rulers to see their integrity and to have a more favorable impression of the God that they serve. Jesus is calling us to be that, to create a place of safety by obeying God before we obey anyone else even if it means that we have to take a risk sometimes, and even if it means that we have to resist some unjust commandments in our society along the way. This is part of the biblical testimony. Well, that's plenty for us to chew on this week. Luke, thank you for um, leading us, and thanks so much for uh, your part in teaching us today. Let me pray for us as we wrap up. Lord God, um, we think of this phrase, place of safety. And I remember a book that I read once that portrayed Jesus as a, a ship. And um, the ship is full of passengers. And the ship collides with a massive iceberg. And in doing so, the ship is crushed and torn to pieces. But it carves out a cave in which the passengers can seek safety and um, no passengers are lost. That is what Jesus has done for us. Mm -hmm. He was crushed mm -hmm. so that we could have a place of safety. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thank you for the way that he's done that for us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes so that we might do this for others mm -hmm. um, and that we might be ready to, uh, to take a risk to be that place of safety for others, just as you gave everything to be that and to create that for us. Holy Spirit, teach us today. Stretch us, shape us, make us love the scriptures more than we love the wisdom of human minds. Make us love Jesus more than we love all else put together, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, take everyone. Take care.